This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. series Disciple by Jesus, and we're getting towards the, the cross. Hopefully we should land at the cross at Easter, which would be incredible, great planning. And what I want to do this, this week is kind of roll back and sort of give you Peter's whole story. So uh, that's where we're going to go. That there's something kind of uh, sad but compelling about failure, that we, um, we're drawn to human failure. There's something about that that the make is interested because it kind of gives us an understanding uh, of, of what we're like. But actually, I don't want to. I want. Uh, there's something far more compelling uh, that we're often that we want to be drawn to, and I felt we got really got there this morning in the worship. When I want to talk about the grace of God, so actually, failure is not the end point of the story. It, it's actually God's grace is the end point of the story. It's it's God's beautiful, irresistible, compelling grace that ultimately tells us what we're really like, and we find in Peter's story today. Uh, that grace working magnificently. So let me uh, just read. I'm going to read from Luke, actually, to just set the context. So we're rolling back Peter's story. We'd seen Peter's character. We hadn't actually got to his denial. We're going to roll that back, go to his denial, and then end the story. So let let me just read. We're in Luke 5, uh, verse 4. I'll just read a few verses, and then we'll go to work. Jesus said to Simon, Put into deep water, let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help them. And they came and the boats were so overwhelmed or so full that they began to sink. When Simon saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and, his all, he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you'll fish for people. So they pulled up their boats on the shore, left everything, and followed him. Father, we just pray as we follow Peter's story. That actually, ultimately, it wouldn't be about Peter, but it'd be about you. That it wouldn't be about us and the lives we've walked and the mistakes we've made and the failures that sometimes have shaped us, but it'd be about you. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, that your grace would come and overwhelm us, challenge us, change us, draw us to say how beautiful you are this morning. Amen. I just want to reference my friend, Steph Liston, who preached this uh, topic at New Day. Um, so if you want a better version, you can go on the New Day website and listen to Steph. He was brilliant. Peter's first encounter with Jesus is uh, one that I, I really love because it tells us so much about ourselves. But, but they're basically fishermen. They fished all night. You, you, you may be familiar with the story looking around. I suspect that most of you are. They fished all night and they've, they've caught nothing. 
And then Jesus comes and says, put your nets down to the other side of the boat. And they catch this overwhelming uh, catch of fish, this massive catch of fish that, that's so huge that the boats are sinking. And um, I guess on one level you could say, oh, this is a story about if you, if you trust God, he's going to bless you financially. And that's true on one level, but I think there's a deeper level than that. Because Peter doesn't say, as I've said many times, it doesn't say, great, I'm taking the month off. This is not a really an issue about finance. This is not an issue about God's provision financially, although I do believe that God provides financially. But obviously it's quite hard when you feel like, well, it's a stuff, financial challenge and struggle for me. Why isn't God blessing me financially? You can think, well, God doesn't love me. He doesn't care for me. And then other people who seem to have pots of money can think quite comfortably, well, God's blessing me. And I don't think the issue is a story is about finance here. I think it's something else. I think it's about the grace of God. It's a story about God's overwhelming, unmerited favor. What happens is that, that Peter's a fisherman, and so he thinks, well, I'm going to give him some fish. It, it, if I was thinking, well, Peter's a fisherman, I want to give him a gift, 10 fish. You know, he's probably got, you know, they can have a, he's probably got five, six kids, maybe a wife, give eight kids, two for bonus, 10, 10 fish. That would be good. That would be generous. And if somebody popped around your house, if you like steak, maybe you don't like fish, and somebody said, look, I brought you some steaks, I brought you 10 steaks. And you think, wow, amazing, that's nice, how, how lovely. Uh, what a generous gift, you know, and if you're, if you're pregnant or you're about to have a baby, I'm sure people pop around with them with some nice meals, I'm sure you won't get steak, but you might get steak, steak kidney pie, I don't know what you get, but you get a little bit of something and think, oh, isn't that nice? And I love it when the church kind of, kind of digs together and supports somebody uh, with a little bit of giving, and, and I think um, Josh and Yana got double because they had two kids, and uh, Chris and Ali you know, were all lined up, so it's all going to be whoever wants to take that on, that would be brilliant, just create a Facebook group and off you go. But, but Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, that's nice, we'll just give you a little gift. You're a fisherman, you like fish, I'll just give you a little gift. Um, actually, his response says there's something else going on, because he does actually, and, 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 and Helen prayed it at the end about um, kind of falling on our knees. Peter does that amazing thing. He falls on his knees uh, and he says, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Leave me alone. There's something about God's generosity at this point that is so overwhelming that it's just much more than financial provision. There's something else going on. God's overwhelming generosity. It's almost like he's cascading kindness. Is there there a next slide there? You you got... Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Cascading kindness. It's kind of like, I I was trying to look for a big net of fish. Uh, You know, here's this picture, and it's like a massive net of fish. When God wants to bless you, when God wants to put his grace on you, it's not determined by how good you've been or how how many times you've been at church or all those kind of things you do. God just does it. I think Andy prayed it unconditionally. Even when you've messed up, God does it when you haven't earned it, when it's not merited, and he he does it so lavishly that, uh, to kind of phrase, it doesn't float our boats, it sinks our boats. You know, he's, he does it so amazingly that when God blesses us, it, 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 it sinks us, doesn't it? There's that line in that song, if grace was an ocean, we're all sinking. Uh, actually, there's a phone, uh, if iPhones were an ocean, we're all sinking as well, is the joke going around in our family. But you didn't get the first one, so it didn't help, did it? <laughs> and it's God's nature, it's God's nature to bless us. It's God's nature to overwhelm us in our lives. And it's our nature to evaluate how much we've earned. 
So we'll put ourselves on a scale and say, this is how much we've earned. And God just blows that whole scale away, and we're all standing in queue and think, well, I've earned more than him, and he's done better than me. And, and we go in that queue and think, well, I'm really, really bad. But that, when the grace of God comes, he just overwhelms all of us. Nobody's standing up because it's almost like this massive, cascading kindness that flows over us. It's this overflowing goodness of God, and it's grace. And it floors Peter. And when you experience the goodness of God, when you think, I totally don't deserve it, I totally messed up, I've totally failed, when you experience the goodness of God, it does floor you. It brings Peter to his knees. He comes to his knees, he holds on to Jesus' knees, and he says, whoa, 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 this is, this is too much. This is too much. It's too much. And he says, leave me alone. He says, leave me alone. If you knew what I'd done, you couldn't love me. If you knew the things I'd thought, the secret things I'd, no one else knows, you couldn't be near me. If, if, you, if you knew the things that I really was like, the thoughts, you'd be horrified with me. Go away. This, this goodness is just too much for me. But actually, he's also drawn to Jesus. It's that funny tension that, that when, you, when, when you know who you truly are, you think, oh, I'm too bad for Jesus. But when you, and then it was prayed again, I held and prayed it. When you, when, you, when you know who you truly are, you think, oh, I, I just need Jesus. And Peter's got that kind of dynamic going on. He's got that sense where he falls on Jesus' feet and thinks, this is my life. I've fished all night and I've caught nothing. That's the story of his life. He may have earned a bit, fished a bit, had a fishing business, but the bottom line is his life, was like his net, was basically empty. And he meets Jesus and he thinks, I'm too bad for you, but there's something compelling about you that draws me. And, and Jesus says to him, come and follow me. And I don't think Peter says, well, let me just weigh it up. You have got a comfortable fishing business. You know, I'm respected in the community. I've got a wife and two, three kids. Let's just balance that. And what you're just saying, you're going to leave everything and just follow me. Let me just have a seat. And we can be like that, can't we? But when you experience the grace of God, and we need to experience the grace of God continually, when we experience the grace of God, we just say, we leave leave everything. So what is interesting, it says they leave their boats immediately. What were their boats full of? Fish. They didn't say, well, let me just go and deal with this and just go with this. You know, when I talk to my kids and they, um, they're playing on computer and I say, uh, Nazi said, just go get the kids for tea. And they say, just let me finish. Yeah? Just let me finish. I mean, you don't recognize that, most of you, because you haven't had that dynamic. But actually, uh, we had some friends down from, who we knew in Manchester, and they've got a little sort of six-year-old. And he's just said, they, they called him and they said, come on, Thomas. And he said, just let me finish. I said, Mike, you need to nip that on the bud. Otherwise, when they're 16, 17, 18, they say, just let me finish. And, and they didn't say, just let me finish. Just let me do the things that are really, that's really important. And then I'll come. No, they just leave it all. They just leave it all. And they go immediately. And, they, and, that, and it's almost as if Peter does this thing where he says, his, his, his line is a bit like what Paul writes about his own life when he encounters the grace of God. Uh, Paul writes this in Philippians, I count everything as rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. That's that's how Peter starts. That's how Peter starts his journey. He starts with an evaluation, I am not good enough for this. I am a sinful man. In fact, leave me alone if you knew what I was really like. But he starts with nothing and he starts on his knees. 
He starts on his knees at Jesus to say, I've got nothing to bring to this party. I've got nothing but my mess up. I've got nothing but my emptiness. I've got nothing to bring to this party, but I want you. And he starts that journey. And then what happens is he's on that three-year journey. And I mentioned this last week, three-year journey where he becomes the leader of the disciples. He becomes in Jesus in the group. He's the one on the mountain who sees Jesus transfigured into all his glory. He's the one who confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus says to him, you're going to be Peter and I'm going to build with you. You're going to be the rocky, I'm going to build with you. Your name's Peter. He changes his name. All that stuff we talked about last week. He changes his name. But what's happening at the same time is something really subtle. Because what happens is he starts to forget that Jesus is the one. And he starts to think it's about himself. He starts to make that subtle shift from where Jesus is at the center, and he thinks, I bring nothing to this but my desperation. And gradually by the end, he starts to think it's about him. And we looked at it last week, and let's pick it up again. So let's read what we we read last week. You'll all fall away, says Jesus, at the Last Supper. Jesus told them, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. He's pretty proud already. Truly, truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, even before the cock crows, the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. In one of the other Gospels, it says, uh, Jesus says, I'm going to a place where you can't go, where you can't follow, and I'm going to be crucified. And Peter says, let me go with you. I'll die for you. Now, that sounds on one level quite a good thing, doesn't it? If, you, if I said, hands up here, who's willing to die for Jesus? You know, and people do that. In, in some countries of the world, people do die for Jesus. They ask them to deny their faith, and they say, no, Jesus is everything, and I'll die for you, Jesus. And it sounds like a noble thing, doesn't it? But at this point, it's out of shape, isn't it? It's out of shape. Why? We can discuss. Why is that out of shape? Only two people discussing. Everyone else thinks, I don't know the answer. I don't care about the answer. He's going to tell me the answer. Barbara's going to say, out of shape. Sorry, it's my Yorkshire accent. You'll, you'll get it. If you sat closer, Barbara, you'd... you'd... <laughs> yeah, why is it out of shape? Go on, Vic. He wants to be the saviour. He started to think, I'm the saviour. Jesus, I'm going to die for you. It's me and you, Jesus. Me and you. Actually, it started off you and I wasn't anything. And now it's you and me, and then suddenly it's, it's me and you. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to die for you. I've got my sword. I'm ready. I, it's, it's out of shape. Jesus rebukes him and says, no, no, no. No, no, no. By tonight, you're going to disown me. He started to ease himself. He started to ease himself gently to the center. So when he's praying in the garden, we, or when he's asked to pray in the garden, we talked about this last week, Jesus goes into the garden and prays, and Jesus says to Pete, Peter, James, and John, can you just pray? What does Peter do? Does he pray? 
falls asleep. What is he saying? I think there's a slide here that gives a big hint, Adam. No. Oh, I've got to read it. Whoa, I've gone out of order. That's, that's going to struggle. I believe that, believe that. What is he saying? He's saying, I don't need you, God. As I'm preparing this, I think, if I don't pray, it says, I don't need you. You need me. You need me to attend. You need me to serve. You need me to put my money in the box. You need me. But actually, when you pray, you're saying, I need you. He doesn't pray, does he? He sleeps. And then what happens is, let's, let's pick it up. He's moved himself to the center. of No, pet, no prayer. Peter's at the center. And then we read, and we won't read it now, but actually he's got a sword. They all come to arrest Jesus. Peter draws his sword, says John, cuts the high priest's ear off. Vroom. He's like, whoa, get your guns out. Come on, I'm ready. I'm ready to fight. Uh, look, Jesus, you just stand there. I, I, I'll, t- I'll take them for you. Jesus, put your sword away, Peter. You got it all upside down. Get it all upside down. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. If you live by your own strength and your own willpower, if you think you're at the center, man, you've got a shot coming. He's moved himself to the center. He's moved himself to the center. It says, Paul writes this to the, the, the church in Galatians. There's not a slide here. It says, it says you foolish Galatians, who's, we did it at Porterbrook uh, on Sunday night, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? How have you come under this spell? What, how are you under this misapprehension? It says, having begun, how's it go, John? Having begun in the spirit, but finishing the flesh. It, having begun in the spirit, you're finishing the flesh. Having begun holding on to Jesus and saying, I'm desperate for you, I'll bring nothing to this. Finishing, I'm a man. I'm a man. He goes into the courtyard. Everyone else runs away. Peter and John don't run away. Let's read it. Back to the slide, Adam. We're now back on. But it'll now jump. See, because I've... <laughs> it's a skill to follow me on PowerPoint. Uh, they arrested Jesus, took him to the priest, to the, court, to the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. Interesting, that, isn't it? He doesn't run away, he follows at a distance. He's not right in there, but he's at a distance. And, and, and we can follow Jesus at a distance. In fact, John is also following Jesus at a distance. And he says he knows the high priest, says in John's gospel, he knows the high priest, he's wandering around. John has gone, he's wandering around the high priest, like high-fiving the high priest and his servants, because they all know, oh, you're you're John, yeah, yeah, we know you. We know you're with him. Peter's gone, and it's like suddenly he's getting all sorts of pressure. And you can do that. Some people can follow Jesus at a distance and think, my life's lovely. I'll just have a little bit of church on Sunday and follow Jesus at a distance, it's all fine. Other people follow Jesus at a distance and it's disaster because they need to get close. Sorry, that's not even in our notes. <laughs> okay, and so he follows, he, he follows at a distance. Follows at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards, warming himself by the fire. He's pretty, pretty gutsy. And what happens is in this kind of house, there would have been an outer courtyard with a gate, small gate, uh, and with an outer courtyard, it's like an outside, like your patio, really. But obviously it's warm, so it's felt part of the house in the Mediterranean. And then there'll be an inside part of the house, which is kind of up, upper level, the upper courtyard. Jesus is getting duffed up in the upper courtyard. They're spitting on him, they're hitting him, they're, they're saying prophesy, they're, they're accusing him of all sorts of stuff. They're trying him, interrogating him. Then Jesus, and Peter's down here, warming himself by the fire. 
While Peter was below, that's what it says, below, in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warm himself, she, she looked at him closely. You were with that Nazarene? Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And he went out to the entrance, so he goes a little bit away. And then the servant girl sees him again. She said, she said again to those standing around, this, this fellow's one of them. And again he denied it. And a little while. After a little while, those standing near to Peter said, Surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. And began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the cock crowed, and, and Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoke to him, Before the cock crows, you disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. It's interesting, isn't it? There's this kind of increasing denial of Jesus going on. The first time, he, he, a servant girl comes to him and says, um, were you with Jesus? And he says, I, I, I don't understand what you're talking about. Don't lie, does he? He doesn't deny the question. Were, were you with Jesus? I, I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, oh, I don't understand the question. So he's kind of lying to himself, isn't he? As my uh, sister-in-law says to her kids, you're telling yourself a lie and you're believing it. So he's kind of like, Telling himself a lie. Oh, I don't understand what the question is, but he knows he's lying. And he's, but gradually, so he starts evasively to saying. The next time it says a servant girl saw him and, and, and he said to those standing around, you with him? And he said, oh, no, 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 no. I don't know who he is. I have no idea who he is. No, no, no. What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? I, you know, I don't, no, I don't know him. I don't know him. Peter's openly lying now, isn't he? Seems like that. It starts with a little kind of self-deceit before you're openly in it. By the end, he's cursing, calling down curses from heaven. I don't know the man! Fill in your own words. He's calling down oaths. I don't know him. No! He's thinking, if I swear blind, if I act like, you know, my mouth is full of curses, they're definitely not going to think it is. But his mouth has given him away already, hasn't he? Because he's from the north. and It gives you away if you're from the north. It's hard to hide it. You know, however much I try here, that I know people know I'm from the north. And he's, he's from the north. And, and in the end, but Peter's fear has already mastered him. He's already started that journey where he's going to start to deny Christ. And, and you can do that. You can start to a gentle journey where, where you, you, you have a little sin. And it gets bigger and it gets bigger. And before you know it, it's this dis, awful, disgusting, destructive thing that's like a curse on you. And it's easy to look at Peter, isn't it, and say, well, how shameful, how cowardly. I wouldn't have done that. Let me give you an example of my own uh, strength in this area. We went out for a curry, Nezzy and I, with um, some friends who are not Christians, Phil and Laura. They're really nice. Laura, uh, Naomi's friends, and I've played tennis with Phil. He smacked, smacked me seriously bad, so that was good. And um, he, we chatted away, and they always ask, well, what's your church like? This time it was a really blunt out question. So what is it special about your church? Now what should I have said? What would have been the Sunday school answer? What would have been the real answer? Jesus is so special about our church. What did I say? No, no, I didn't say that. I said it's about me. No, that would have been a really good Peter illustration. No, I'm not that far. I said, oh, we, we, we kind of, you know, we try to build a really nice, loving community. Well, the golf club does that, you know. Whatever, the Conservative Party club does that. Or <laughs> Labour, Liberal, UKIP, 
greens, whatever. You know, they do that. The kind of NCT mummies do that. Don't they? Probably better than us. But, you know, I didn't say Jesus, and I felt bad. And I was reading Mark Driscoll, which is always dangerous. (laughs) And he says, you know those silent denials where you're in a conversation about Jesus and you don't do anything? This is what he put. I think it's there. You say to yourself, well, I'm not one of those Bible thumpers. I just don't want to force my faith on people. It just puts people up. Or I'm not going to say anything about... You say, oh, I'm not saying anything about Jesus. And what you're really saying is, I don't care much about your eternal destiny as much as you don't think badly of me. Or he says, I love myself more than them. I love my name and my reputation. So in my silence, I deny Jesus. And I thought, so we're talking about having a football dinner at church for the football guys. And there's this debate going on. Do we mention Jesus at the football dinner or not? One says, no, we're not these Bible-thumping crazy Christians are going to grab you by the throat, press you against the wall and say, are you going to heaven or hell? But equally, we can get so far the other side, well, we better not mention him at all. I haven't decided what we're going to do because it's not my call. But I was talking to Mark Clemmer and he says, let's just do a little video. Let's mention him, you know, let's, let's mention him. You know, let's not be ashamed. And so it's easy to, to do that. Peter stumbles, doesn't he? And now he falls. It's really interesting. If Peter hadn't been thinking he was the man, if he hadn't been thinking he was the saviour, if he hadn't been thinking he's the one, he wouldn't have got in this bother because actually in John's Gospel, the, person, the, the servant who comes to him is the servant of the high priest. He says this in John's Gospel. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off. That's why they know who Peter is. That's why John's wandering around fine and Peter's not because Peter's like... Arrogance and bravado has put him in a trouble. Put him in a trouble. And um, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? And then he says he began to call down curses. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. It's interesting. Peter's Galilean accent gave him away. Your speech actually gives you away. One way or another, your speech gives you away. I always feel embarrassed when... You know, if we have somebody important, Christian, we don't have it very often, come to our house. I was thinking, why do the kids, like, muck about so badly and disabout, you know, and they, they speak horribly to each other? And I think, oh, what are people thinking? <laughs> because your speech gives you why. I can't really airbrush the fact that, that my kids and us and me and Nays are fallen, broken sinners. We, we, it's difficult to airbrush that one out. And the kids, our speech gives us away. And your speech gives you away. You know, if you bang your head and you're walking downstairs, your reaction says something about what's in your heart. Frightens me sometimes. What? Where did that come from? And you think, your speech gives you away, and Peter's speech gives him away. So he uses his speech to blend in, cursing, swearing, oh, they'll never know what I'm like. Think, be careful, our speech gives us away. And it says, just as he was saying, I don't know the man, I don't know the man, what's the matter with you? I don't know him. It says, just as he was speaking, the cock crowed, and Jesus turned, it says, Luke says, turned and looked straight at Peter. Oof. Then Peter remembered the Lord had spoken to him. Remember the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you disowned me three times, and he went outside and wept bitterly. 
between the moments of Jesus being interrogated, where Jesus needed his friends with him, where, where Jesus needed Peter there with him, when he needed, in one sense, Jesus is alone. But at that moment, the cock crows and he turns around and catches Peter. He's up in the upper uh, courtyard and he looks at Peter. Now, what do you think Peter's, Jesus' look is telling Peter? You can answer at this point. Yeah, because that's what we would do, isn't it, Andy? I told you so. Cocky boy, I told you. Three, yeah, yeah, the cock's crow, uh-huh, told you. I don't think Jesus is doing that. When he's looking for him, he's thinking, oh, Peter, I feel for you. I, I want to give you that, I want my look to be that look of grace, that it's all right, I still love you. You've hurt me deeply, but I still love you. And you know, sometimes we can, we can think that when we sin, that Jesus doesn't see, which is quite nice. If you sin, you think, well, Jesus doesn't see. Closed doors, big row in your family, Jesus doesn't see. You think he doesn't see, but he does see. But actually, you can sometimes think, well, I'm on my own, when I'm under pressure, Jesus isn't there. That he doesn't care. But he does. This looks as... I'm there for you. I'm there. I care for you. He looks straight at Peter and he's saying something so deep. In fact, it, we, we, it was almost prayed this morning. I wish somebody had prayed it, but there's a sense about faithfulness. We sang a song, didn't we, about, right at the beginning about faithfulness. But it says in 2 Timothy, even if you're faithless, he will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. Elsewhere it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus' look is one of inexpressible tenderness of overflowing love. It's like the first time he looked at Peter. Jesus goes to the cross alone, doesn't he? Peter's not there. John's there. All the rest run away. Jesus is surrounded by the darkness alone. He takes on the darkness. He takes on destructive evil. He takes on all the God-denying sin that we do, that Peter did, that everybody else does, acting like God doesn't exist, and defeats it by his death. But Peter's also alone in that moment. You know what failure does? It puts this darkness. So Jesus is surrounded by darkness, dying for the sins of the world. Peter is in, I think, in this kind of crushing, empty place, and it's kind of eating him up, because failure is like a darkness inside you. It's like this dark chasm inside you and he just thinks, oh man, I'm such, a, I'm such a disaster. Sin and shame kind of want to swallow him up. They want to take him and say, you're a failure and suck the life out of him. Just want to make him empty and he just feels it draining away. Feels like, I'm sure he felt physically sick. Just bitter tears. All his hope is gone. All his dreams are broken. He's bewildered. He's thinking, oh, and it seems like if you follow Peter for the next few days, he's just in a daze. He's kind of there, but not there. He kind of comes and does the stuff with the disciples, but he's not there. So, so three days later, the women come and say, Jesus is risen from the dead. He goes bolt into the tomb. He gets there first. In fact, there's a debate who got there first. Was it John or Peter? You know, because they're kind of a little bit like, I got there first, I got there first, and I'm the faster runner. But actually, Peter gets there first, but John, he's scared to go in. Why is he scared to go in? He doesn't go inside the dark emptiness of death. He doesn't want to go in there. He's scared of it because it's in him. John goes in. He says, John believed. Peter's not so sure. 
Jesus comes in the upper room and, and says, let's have some fish. And Peter thinks, fish, no! Not fish. It was fish, wasn't it? Not fish. I don't want fish. No, I don't want fish. And he, 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 eats, the, he eats the food and says, look, I'm not a ghost. But Jesus is dazed. I think Peter's just dazed. He should say, yes, Jesus is risen. But you know, he can't celebrate it. He can't celebrate it. Because he can't enter the life of it because his fear just makes him stand at the side. He's just like, oh, I can't, I can't. He should be like, yes, Jesus is risen, we win. But his fear makes him stand at the side and we can do that. We know that Jesus is risen by faith, we know that Jesus is risen. We know that Jesus is risen by the evidence that he's done in our lives and the church that's around, around us and the, the wider church. We know that. But actually, if we're living in failure, we just can't enter in. We just can't celebrate in worship. Worship's just like a little bit of a, a pain. It just shows us how dark it is inside us. And he just can't, he just can't, he just can't go there. He's just in this daze. Jesus is risen, yeah. But what about me? Because he's still what about he? It's still, it's still, it's about him. It's still about him. So what does he do? John's gospel picks up the end of the story. We'll land it down. He says, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. Let's read it. It says here, John 21. Simon Peter, Thomas, not that Thomas, another Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Why didn't they get named? I don't know. Obviously, we read Mark's go- uh, John's gospel. Said, Why didn't you give us a name check? Anyway, that's what people are like. T- the two of us were together at the lake. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. Simon Peter told them, he said, they said, we'll go with you. They know what Peter's like. Oh, we'll, we'll be with you. Sometimes when your friends are having a tough time when they've failed, you don't say, well, Peter, you deserve it. You know why you're feeling bad? Because you blew it. Point a finger. His friends are there, aren't they? He's three, he's six, two threes. They're there and they say, I'm with you. And they go fishing. And it's really ironic, isn't it? Because they caught nothing. They caught nothing. Jesus is, it, Peter's going back, isn't he? He's going back. He says, I'm going back. I've blown it, I'm going back. Forget it, it was just three years of a bad story. I'm just going back. You know, I, I, I backslid in my 20s. And, um, and you just feel bad, but you don't know how to articulate it. You know there's a darkness inside. You know, the empty net is like the story of your life again. When you go back, you, your life's just empty. Because if you had Jesus, even if the nets were full, his life would have been empty. But his nets are empty and he just feels, ah. And you feel you can't go to Jesus. You want Jesus, but you don't know where to go. You don't know what to do. And you're just in a daze and empty. And you just go back to your empty life. And everyone else is not worried about it. But you just know. I guess they sat in the boat that night and everybody's thinking, you know, it's just not it, is it, guys? I wish Jesus was here. Nobody dare say, you know. Peter's thinking, I wish Jesus was here, but I wish he wasn't here. And they catch nothing. Steph's brilliant, actually, when he talked about it in his sermon at New Day. He said, you know, God said, God, Jesus comes to the lake and says, now you fishes, we're not having any of you. None of you are going in that net. Not, not one of you. No, 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 none of you. None of you in the net. No. <laughs> and it's like, 
it's, it's almost like it's a supernatural. When Jesus, hear this, when Je- he didn't say this, this is why I thought God spoke to me. When Jesus fills your net, that's grace. But sometimes when Jesus empties your net, that's grace. When you just think, oh, come to the, what the prodigal son says, he said, oh, what a fool I am. Everybody in my father's house has got much more, even the servants have got more, and here I am with the pigs. It's empty. He says, he came with senses, what a fool. Sometimes when God empties your life, it's good. Because if you put yourself at the center, if you want to be your own savior, you're going to find pretty soon that you're not very good at it. So what happens is, the story continues, and I think it's here. Early in the morning, oh, here we go again. Early in the morning, it's just like last time, just as day was breaking, Jesus is on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. They're about 100 yards away. I guess the sun's kind of set on the water, low-level sun on the water. They don't know it is. They say, have you caught anything? Shut up. Might have even added a few oaths and curses. Shut up. Your life empty. Shut up. Thank you for the question, stranger. (laughs) You know, when I was making my way back to Jesus when I met Christians, you know, my basic answer was shut up. Because you just know it's true. But you don't go there. Did you catch anything? Friends, have you caught anything? No, they answered. Jesus, he says, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you find something. Think, Who is this joker? When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. And it says, John says, it's him. And Peter's, whoa. And he's 100 yards away. Do you know last time Peter stepped out of a boat? He walks on the water. I'm the man walking on the water. And then he realizes, oh no, storms, waves, failure. This time he thinks, I am not walking on water. I am a failure. I am already sunk. I know. I'm just going to fall. I'm going to jump in. But he thinks, I can't meet Jesus in my pants. So he gets his cloak on and he dives into the water. I don't know if he's swimming or what's he doing. I don't know how deep it is, but he's got this big massive cloak. All his friends say, he's gone again. He's off again. What's going on? Because Peter remembers how it started. He remembers how it started with cascading kindness, with overflowing goodness. And he wants it again. He wants to taste the grace of God again, but he doesn't know how. But he just thinks, I've got to be near Jesus, but I can't be near him. Go away from me. I'm a sinful man. He's ringing in his ears. But he said, but I've got to be near him. It was always about him. He remembers it was always about him. It wasn't about me. It was always about his cascading kindness. It was always about how much I didn't deserve it. It was always about his free gift. It was always about his choice of me. It was always about his unconditional love. It was never about I can't be near you. It was always about I had to be near you. It was never about I love myself. It was all about I love him. It was never about going back and forgetting I never knew him. It's always, please, can we start again? Peter's in the water, swims, leaves the nets. When they get there, see it should be up here. When they landed, they saw a fire burning in the coals with there with fish on it. Oh, there it is again. Some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've caught. So Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. Man, he's pumped. 
It says there's a large 153 fish. Obviously, there's a church leader there doing the count. Uh, but there were so many that the net was not torn. Jesus says, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was him. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it, took the bread and gave it to them. Oh, that sounded familiar. Took the bread and gave it to him and did the same with the fish. He says, come and have breakfast. Again, Steph says it so brilliantly in his sermon. He says, uh, aren't you the Lord of Lords? Yeah, but come and have some breakfast. Aren't you the saviour of the world? Yeah, yeah, why don't we have a bit of fish? Aren't you the one who was dead and alive again? Yeah, come on, have some breakfast. And Steph says, and I, I loved it when he, I was there and I could hear my kids kind of hearing it. He says, isn't he lovely? Come and have some breakfast. But I've really messed up. Can we talk about it? Just let's have some breakfast. You know, in that culture, shared meals, shared life, it says, I accept you. That's Jesus' discipleship strategy. Let's eat. This is evangelism strategy. Let's eat. This is community building strategy. Let's eat. It's not let's get together on a Wednesday night. Excuse me, I'm having to dig at our groups and get our diaries out. I mean, that might have been it. But it's actually let's eat. Let's eat. It says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Why? Because those you eat with are those you accept. We need to eat with other people. We need to eat with people in this church and other people. We need to eat. I, I feel that that fog that I was sort of experiencing, looking for each other, I think, guys, we mustn't lose each other. We mustn't lose each other. We mustn't forget what we're about and lose each other in all sorts of other things. I says, come on, let's have some breakfast. So they have breakfast, and Jesus gives them bread, and I don't know if there's any wine, but they had fish instead, but I've got wine this morning. And, um, and then it sounds like they went for a walk. Peter's quite quiet, which is pretty rare for him. He's normally got loads of questions. He's quite quiet, He's sitting at the back, as it were. Uh, and everyone knows the kind of elephant in the room, and he says, Jesus, come on, we've got to go for a walk. Come on, Peter, we've got to talk. We've got to talk. Peter don't want to talk, but he wants to talk. He says, we've got to talk, we've got to talk. And um, it's funny, because why did Jesus deal with this way? Surely Peter's back in, he's had the food, he's in, he's, he's had the meal, it's all good, he's in the mix, and he surely he would have been, that's fine, he could have left it there. But you know, if, you don't, if you, a failure is not spoken about, if failure's not dealt with, if failure's not confessed and named and sorted, you're always going to feel like, this is shaping me. He might have got to eat with Jesus, he might have got to see the risen Jesus, but Jesus needed to do that extra bit. He needed to go that little bit further. Otherwise, you know, Peter was always going to have this thing about roosters, wasn't he? Every morning, whoa, don't, if you're going camping with Peter, just when the rooster crows, he's going to turn around and duff someone. What? You know, he's got this thing about number three. Don't really do number three. He's a bit, you know. But Jesus had to deal with it. If you don't let Jesus, the grace of Jesus, deal your failures, it gets inside you. You know what you're trying to do after a while? You try and cover it up again. You start to think, actually, I'm in now. No one's mentioning it. Maybe we can just brush it under the carpet. 
You try and cover it up. Or you try and compensate, don't you? You try and compensate and you th- by being really, really good. You try and be really good and you think, no one's going to notice I've messed up. I'm going to be really self-righteous. You know, what people say is often that people have been failures are most judgmental. Or you, you try and prove yourself by getting in a church and working really hard and thinking everyone's, no one's going to notice. But all those responses make it all about you again. Covering it up, acting big, acting spiritual, they all make it about you again. But Jesus wants to make it about him, doesn't he? He says to him, Simon, son of John, that's his old name, we said that last week. Simon, John, son of John, do you love me? You know I love you. Simon, son of John, do you love me? You know I love you. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Oh, that hurt. That hurt him. He touches Peter's failure with that three thing. Three times he said, no, don't know you. Do you love me? He asked him a third time. He's like, oh. You know what? The, the Willow Creek guys, uh, church in the state, say you've got to go the extra 10%. If you want to deal with sin, you've got to go right to the extra last little bit and say, come on. Let's talk about it. You know what happens is when you've backslidden, you get a moment where he suddenly he just touches the hurt, touches the failure. And, and you want to cry all over again. I remember when I was, I'd been three years backsliding, I'm really almost done here. Three years backsliding, and a friend of mine took me to a summer festival, kind of West Point, sort of thing and um, it's in the worship and I was doing the Peter thing that's how I knew what it's like so I was at the back with this big emptiness inside me thinking oh, I just want to be I just want to celebrate the risen Jesus and I can't I didn't articulate that I just felt bad and then it, well, it just felt like that somehow I'm thinking I'm too bad for you get away from me I'm a sinful man it just felt like by the spirit of God he put his finger out and just touched me and I cried, cried, and cried. And I thought, oh, this is good to cry. It's good to cry. And I, and I felt restored in that moment. It, Jesus touched Peter and he said, yes, you know everything. You know everything. You know I love you. You know that I, I'm a mess up. You know that I, I, I can't get it right. You know that I, I've failed. You know that I'm wrong. You know that I've never brought anything to this party. But, but then Jesus does what he did with that boat. He just pours overwhelming grace. It's not, a, it's not fish. It's just love just pours over Peter. It just pours over Peter. He says, do you love me? He says, yes. You know I love you. And if you've messed up, you've got to let Jesus touch the hard place. And you've got to then say, yeah, you know I love you. It's the best, it's the most healing thing. He don't want to say, now, are you going to do better this time, Peter? Are you going to try harder? Are you going to sort it out? Are you going to be a good churchgoer? Are you going to smile nicely? You know, let's talk about your leadership gift. You know, you're going to be, are you, are you still going to get to be a leader? Are you still going to do all that? It, there's none of those questions, is there? He just says, do you love me? We're going to sing now. And if you need the grace of God, to just 
pour on you, overwhelm you with, your, with his goodness. Then I'm, in a minute, I'm just going to ask us to, to respond. Let me just move this. If we've messed up, let's have some breakfast. So Jesus, didn't he, he says, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread and broke it, gave it to his disciples. This is my body. After supper, he took the cup. He says, this is a cup. This is my blood. The new covenant. This is forgiveness. It's in this cup. Poured out for many. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.